Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray and this week's show is brought to you by Push Security. Uh, They are a funded startup and they do SaaS security. So basically you can use their tech to see where your users are putting company data and you can stop them from doing that in an insecure way or discourage them from doing that in an insecure way. And you can also get an idea of what your exposure is like when a SaaS provider gets breached. You know, you can look up how many of my users have accounts with that service, that sort of thing. So uh, Push founder Adam Bateman is this week's sponsor guest and he'll be along later on to talk about some research uh, they've done into how to attack companies via SaaS accounts. Uh, some quick housekeeping, uh, Catalan Kimpanu and Tom Uren have both taken this week off. So if you're wondering why you're not getting your Risky Business news and seriously Risky Business podcasts and newsletters, that's why they're off doing normal human being stuff. So yeah, uh, let's get into a check of the week's news now with Adam Boileau. G'day, Adam. Hey there, Pat. And also joining us this week is a special guest co-host, Lena Lau. Hello, Lena. Hi. And uh, Lena has a background in incident response, and these days she runs the training company Sintra, and that's with an X, and uh, they offer courses on things like attacking and defending Azure and M365. I'm going to drop a link to the Sintra page uh, in this week's show notes, but yeah, let's get into it now. And the first thing we're going to be talking about is some a, a discovery, let's put it that way, out of Wiz, where Microsoft appears to have leaked some data, Adam. Yes, uh, so Wiz obviously keeps a pretty close eye on what Microsoft's cloud is up to. Uh, and one of the things you can do with Microsoft Storage is you can provide like links that are uh, authenticated into Microsoft Storage System, so like their equivalent of S3 buckets, I suppose. Uh, and Wiz was scanning around and found a link uh, from some Microsoft employee's GitHub page to a, a thing that was meant to allow you to download some training data for a you know, machine learning model that they had been working on. Um, But the link that they had created to do that actually linked to essentially like the entire bucket uh, where the data was stored. And that had a whole bunch of other things uh, from that Microsoft person's life, including backups of their workstation at Microsoft, uh, amongst other things. Uh, And not only was the data there and exposed, it was also writable. Uh, the token that they have provided allowed you full rewrite, read, write access. So that's a little bit embarrassing. Um, Wiz wrote this up in a blog post and a little a little bit breathless i suppose but we've seen um, it, this is wizard's thing right like they'll do some really good work and then they always overcook it with the marketing st- marketing side of this right so they're saying like oh there's hundreds of thousands of teams messages what they don't mention in their breathless twitter feed is that that came off like three workstation backups yeah, so what I found really interesting was they were talking about how difficult it was to revoke the SaaS token and rotate the keys, but it's just as simple as rotating the account key. I just kind of felt like the Wiz write-up was a little bit inflated uh, in terms of the remediation side of things yeah. and what was actually exposed. And if you look at the screenshot that they posted, they had like SSH keys and Azure access tokens, but a lot of these are actually encrypted, so it's not even in plain text. Yeah. Which is makes them kind of useless, right? So, and I, I just find the whole thing crazy that you've got these things like SAS tokens that you can embed in clear text in a URL. <laughs> like that just seems... oh my god, yeah, that's like the premise of how like storage account abuse works in Azure, and it's wild. Yeah, it's wild to me that they had this one container where they had all of these, you know, backups of workstations and Teams messages along with the actual relevant data. It's wild to me that they stored it all in one container instead of like segregating the data. 
But I think all of this speaks to a bigger problem. You know, we've gone to this situation where we've got this all singing, all dancing Fido2 ecosystem, probably people in Microsoft are using these things. And then we've just got like a string of hex, right? That just gives yeah. you access <laughs> anywhere and can be embedded in a URL. And I just think, what the f*** are we doing? <laughs> I mean, this is the, the challenge with moving from a, a world where we understood how operating systems worked and we understood how networks worked because there were only a few of them. Now every cloud vendor, every system, every product inside a cloud vendor has got their own crazy world that you have to learn all of the details about. And I mean, I didn't really know much about SaaS tokens and the fact that they are like created client sides, you don't really have an audit log of them being created. Like there's some records of them being used, but if you want to understand how your environment works, you have to understand the specifics of, you know, 400 different cloud services and their security model, which may change underneath you and is probably poorly documented. uh, And that's how we're now supposed to do it. Whereas, you know, sure, NTLM inherited rights were complicated or, you know, netware rights masks or whatever else, but at least there was a finite number of those that we had to understand as security people back in the, in the, you know, in the old man days. Um, Whereas now, it's just so complicated uh, and understanding the impact of those is real hard. Yeah, we only know that that one SaaS token was leaked because it was on GitHub. Yes. But what stops an employee from generating multiple SaaS tokens to share the data across teams or over, you know, over mail? How do you know how many SaaS tokens are created? How do you know how many things you need to revoke? It just the fact that there's no auditing, it's wild. I mean, if I, if, fact, I, yeah. if I had to name this feature, I'd probably call it zero trust authentication. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you just yeah. can't trust it. It's nuts, I mean, it, right? It, it, uh, it kind of has parallels in a way to how the, the curb infrastructure in Windows Active Directory works, where you, know, you can create very long-lived tokens for persistence for whatever else without any real way of understanding that they've been minted. And then you just have to rely on people knowing they need to rotate everything all the time Mm. and now we're back to like having to change passwords every three months except now we have to change all of the underlying you know keys that people don't really understand or know about Uh, so like you know we're heading in the right direction on 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 authentication overall but some of these days feels like a step backwards you know yeah golden tickets everywhere right yes yeah yeah. i thought it was really interesting that in the microsoft write-up they said that they had some like automated scanning service that they use that they run over everything to look for exposed tokens and things and it did identify that same thing that wiz did but their system marked it as a false positive which is really interesting yeah, I, I saw that as well. And I'm like, well, you need to do some tuning there. And I think it was because it was like, I think it wasn't just the presence of that token that was the issue. It's that it was over-provisioned, right? Yeah. And how are you going to know that from secret scanning? How are exactly. you going to know that this SAS token is providing access to the stuff we intended to provide access to versus a whole bunch of workstation backups and Teams messages and this and that, right? Yeah. So I, I, I noticed that as well. And I thought, you can't fix this with secret scanning mm. when you're expecting there to be a, a, a secret there. Mm. Yeah, and, and the blog post did not say this has been corrected, so clearly it's still a problem for them. <laughs> this has been corrected. This has been corrected. <laughs> Manually um, check the permissions. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, good luck, right? I mean, but then again, I mean, there's a lot of startups, right, in the secrets detection space, and maybe that's the next step. And I think even Trufflehog do some stuff around there where they actually take the secrets and then do stuff with them to see how bad mm. it is. But I'm, I'm, I'm not sure on that. That might have been just ideas. I'm sure they're going to email me now and tell me, right? So now let's talk about uh, MGM. MGM still having a hard time. Uh, let's start with you on this, Lena. I mean, you must have been watching this. You, you've got a background in incident response and I imagine you must be, well, 
glad you're not in incident response anymore because it's a <laughs> it's a very <laughs> stressful job. But also watching this one and just thinking, just imagining what it would be like to be on MGM's team at the moment. Yeah, it's not a good situation. I mean, they said that they have super administrative privileges in Okta and Global Admin in Azure, which gives them a complete free-for-all in terms of their cloud environment. I can't imagine the damage and... Uh, to be honest with you, I think this whole situation has obviously caused MGM a lot of pain, public pain. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, it, we are kind of wondering at this point whether that Okta warning from a little way back where they talked about people socially engineering MFA research, resets on Okta super admin accounts, maybe this is what they were talking about. I mean, did you, it seems a few people are wondering if, if these incidents are connected. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who's doing the IR on this, but they would be able to see in the logs whether or not a super admin account did log into Okta or perform anything. So I don't know if MGM's going to release like an incident response write-up on how the intrusion occurred, but I'd be super interested in seeing if that was actually the initial entry point. Well, because we did see a lot of talk about how there was socially in- social engineering involved. Yeah. And yeah. this would fit with, with what Okta described. Yeah. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, I think there are a number of clues that do suggest this is the same set of campaigns, same people behind it. The parallels with uh, Caesar's Palace, which also got uh, themselves compromised by what looks like the same people the month before, also had an Okta element. Uh, so I think we've seen a couple of write-ups uh, from some of the like you know threat intelligence incident response sort of people. I think uh, Palo Alto's Unit 42 wrote up a bunch of, you know, tradecraft from that kind of group and it looks like it all kind of lines up. So I think we're probably like this is the sort of thing that Okta were talking about and clearly it's working pretty well for them if they got, what, 15 mil out of Caesars yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, MGM hasn't paid yet, but they're having a rough time. I mean, I think we said this last time, but don't let your help desk reset MFA for your super admin roles. I mean, that's a pretty easy change to make. What do you think, Lena? I mean, you've been on the inside of a bunch of breaches that I'm I'm guessing looked a lot like this. You know, what's the general advice you'd give people to avoid having this done to them? To be honest with you, this happens all the time. Like I've worked a lot of cases where social engineering has been involved and people just cave in because the second you add some kind of personal component to it, like oh yeah, you know, I worked in the X office or I knew X person. Information that you can just get from Google or LinkedIn, you start to think that they're telling the truth. Yeah. It's wild the way this human psychology works. And then from the perspective of forensics and IR and what a company would see, you would just see an account credential being reset. And you, you know, your EDR tool's not going to pick up on that because it's a normal IT person resetting an account or a normal IT person getting rid of MFA. You would think, okay, that IT person, that's their job. That must be normal business as usual. And that wouldn't really raise alarm bells. It's not until then the threat actor enters the environment abusing what that IT admin did and then performed a series of other things. Then you're like, oh God, how the heck did they get into my environment? I mean, but would you agree that like, doing something like removing or resetting MFA on something like a super admin account is something that the help desk just shouldn't be able to do. No, absolutely not. And also if they are doing that, there should at least be some checks and balances in place, you know, informing X or Y. But to be honest with you, in most organizations, that doesn't, that's not really a thing because the help desk is usually so inundated with requests that adding an additional process just slows down business operations. But I definitely agree. Yeah. And I also think that like when you are federating a new identity provider, like yeah. that should generate about 10 different emails yeah, uh, and Slack alerts and SMS messages and, you know, flashing yeah. lights and maybe an air raid siren. <laughs> yeah. But that's the same as like a lot of companies still don't 
you know, alert on a new domain admin account being created or there's just gaps that exist for some reason. And I can't, I don't really understand why, but they do exist. And unfortunately, it's just unfortunately a little bit normal for the industry. Yeah, it won't happen to us. Um, yeah. And look, we've got some... Uh, Disaster tourism journalism here, Adam, courtesy of Jason Kobler over at 404 Media. Uh, 404 Media is a sort of startup publication run by a bunch of ex-vice people like Joe Cox and, and Kobler. And there's one other, I can't remember her name. I'm very, very sorry. Um, but uh, Jason flew to Vegas and spent five hours in an MG, five hours in Vegas in total and just went to MGM to see what the damage would be like. And, um, you know, I think there's, you can't really put it delicately. It's a shit show. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. Like, it sounds like a real mess on the ground. And, you know, he, he didn't stay at MGM, so he's not sure what the guest experience is like. But, you know, he did a bit of gambling, tried to buy some drinks, talked to a bunch of the staff, uh, went through some of their manual processes. And the real, like, the real flavour you get, which is, you know, quite vicey in a way, is the human experience of being an employee uh, at an MGM casino right now sounds pretty rough, uh, you mm. know, if you work in the food counters or in the kitchen or whatever. Um, but I did feel a little bit disaster tourism-ick uh, from, from this particular piece. <laughs> I don't know. I don't mind watching casinos suffer, right? That's like, I true. think ransomware crews should only target casinos and then <laughs> I'd, be, I'd support them. I mean, it would, be, it, would, it would be funny if they only hit casinos and not hospitals and schools for disabled children, you know? I think it's funny that it like disrupts someone sitting at a slot machine for 18 hours a day, having to stop and then beg someone to do some human interaction. Maybe it's good. This is Maybe what I'm it's saying. Good for people with gambling addiction. This is what I'm saying. And like, so he points out like the cards that you use to feed like money into into these slot machines, they're not working. Yeah. Right? So you have to actually put cash into them. And then when you want to get money out, you have to hit a button and wait for 15 minutes until some overworked and very stressed staffer comes up wearing a bum bag full of cash. Right. 15 so minutes it's, of self reflection. <laughs> exactly. This is what I'm talking about, right? So maybe Vegas this is, needs more than 15 minutes. Of it. This, is, this is like it's it's it takes a while. You know, it's been a while since we've seen a ransomware attack that we can actually uh, get behind. Um, but it looks like it was the same crew that hit Caesars too, right? And that they've been hitting other hospitality uh, targets. I think this is the discussion that is happening in terms of attribution, whether or not Alf B and Scattered Spider are the same group or not. They're definitely affiliates, but whether or not they're grouped into the same group or not, I think that's just like a discussion that's not super clear at the moment. Yeah, now I wanted to ask you about this because you're, you know, from that whole uh, uh, industry previously in, in incident response where you really care about those attributions. For us, we don't really care yeah. so much, right? So like in preparation for this week's show, you're like, oh, there was some bad reporting from VX Underground and whatever. And like all the Threat Intel and IR people are very, very interested in this. Why don't you just give us a quick rundown on, on all of that, what's been going on? Yeah, sure. So basically VX came on Twitter and they said that, you know, the Threat Actors that um, messed with MGM, tampered with slot machines, you know, teenagers from UK and US broke in and Alf V came out with a publication and in that publication they called out the rumours from VX and said those things did not happen and in that write-up they called out that it's really difficult delineating between various threat groups because there's crossovers and tool usage and if you look at how a lot of these ransomware groups function, a lot of them do use the same toolkits, the similar playbooks and it's really hard to make a distinction between one group and another when there's significant crossover and tools. Yeah, so basically we had Alfie coming out and dissing VX and calling them second rate, right? Like that is basically what happened. <laughs> yeah, low key. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> like it's really interesting this like call out about attribution because if you think about it, what stops one threat actor from reading a write-up from CrowdStrike or Mandian and going, okay, why don't we, you know, get this group blamed for what we do and let us copy their entire set of TTPs and perform the actions? 
Yeah, but does there, is there any evidence that that's actually happened? Because we keep waiting for the grand false flag attacks that are always coming next month, right? Well, Patrick, just, how would we know? How would we, how well, would because we there's know? been very clever people like you working in incident response who would just know, Lena. It's difficult, though, if they yeah. like if they hack into a nation-state infrastructure and do the attack from the proxy from the infrastructure and then use the same tools. You know, you you just sound like a paranoid madman if after every attack you go, oh, but once again, this may not be this threat group. It could yeah. be another threat group. No, no, no. I'm with you. I'm with you. So really what you're saying is we need to be careful about connecting the Caesars one to the MGM one. Is that kind of what you're saying? We just don't know yet. We yeah. don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Meanwhile, bleach shortages, Adam. Bleach. I mean, <laughs> somebody think of the bathrooms. <laughs> yes, uh, bleach manufacturer Clorox appears to have had some manner of ransomware thing going on that's disrupted uh, bleach production, and they are predicting, unlike the um, unlike the casinos, they are predicting some material financial impact. So perhaps uh, bleach manufacturers are an easier target. There you go. Yeah. And we've seen a cyber attack on a small town in Kansas affecting uh, all sorts of systems. We've seen a trucking software provider impacted. Several Colombian government ministries. This is all ransomware. We saw Manchester police officers data stolen, uh, stolen following a ransomware attack on a supplier. I'm guessing that's the same supplier that we spoke about recently that was printing ID cards, I think. Yeah, there was another supplier to the like Metro Police in London. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure if, if they're the connected or not, but yeah. you know, impact is pretty similar. Yeah, and upstate uh, New York uh, non-profit hospitals are still facing issues after lockbit attacks, according to John Grieg over at The Record. Um, so, you know, just a lot of ransomware stuff going on at the moment. So I thought we might just dive into it as we often do and talk about it uh, in, in terms of it being an issue. Uh, the White House, interestingly enough, is urging uh, governments in countries that are sort of part of this, um, you know, anti-ransomware, uh, uh, the counter-ransomware initiative to agree to not paying ransoms, which I think is fair enough. Like I think it's, uh, it would be silly to just put a blanket ban on the payment of ransoms uh, across an economy, but insisting that governments don't, I think is is sensible. And what else have we got? We got a we got some info here out of DHS in the US, and John Griggs written it up. And apparently, uh, you know, it's going to be the second most profitable year for ransomware operators uh, on record. And that's led to some people to sort of ask, well, what are we doing, right? And we got this tweet here from Chris Rolfe. Oh, we've got this X here from 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 Chris Rolfe. <laughs> Uh, and it says, I can think of multiple occasions where well-respected experts assured the world that taking offensive actions would put an end to this ransomware program, uh, problem. Unfortunately, one, it won't end that easily, and two, they're still seen as experts. This is an economics problem that is enabled by technology and you cannot deter or attack your way out of it. Uh, now, first of all, I don't think anyone said that it would absolutely end it completely and the other thing i think is at issue here is that we haven't really started doing proper offensive stuff against ransomware actors we've seen limited operations we've seen the fbi do some takedowns um which is not really what we were talking about when we were proposing sort of more offensive um you know real-time operations against ransomware crews so I think he's kind of arguing that something we haven't tried hasn't worked. But while you're here, Lena, what do you think the effectiveness of all-out cyber knife-fighting ransomware crews would be if we actually gave it a good go? Honestly, I think this is one of those situations where you don't know the answer until you try. It's like the debate on whether or not we legalize drugs for everybody. We just don't know what the result will be unless we do it. I think the issue with this situation with ransomware is the fact that who exactly are we talking about? 
There's hundreds of employees in ransomware as a service. You know, there's the actual hands-on keyboard people doing the hack. Is that who you're talking about? Are we talking about the developers, the people managing the people doing the hack? Are we talking about the initial access brokers? Are we talking about the devs? Who who exactly are we talking about? Because if you look at ransomware as a business, it's a full like it's a full organized crime with yeah. all these various components. And so the concept of hacking back, are you just hacking back the people hacking you? Or are you hacking back the people running that? Or are you hacking back the organization that they're buying the ransomware from, the affiliate programs? You know what I mean? It just kind of blows this, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge issue. I'm with you, but I think I think that, you know, anyone who's used to doing, you know, offensive operations is going to sit down and put together an org chart and figure out where the vulnerable, vulnerable points are, you know. And I think, you know, obvious targets would be the actual developers, right, because they sit at the very top of the, of the hierarchy in a lot of ways. But what you say is interesting when you called it organised crime, because it is and it isn't. It's distributed. You know, it's this open mar- marketplace weird type of crime and it's been like this for a long time now but it makes it very different to like a drug cartel or you know or, or a mafia organization there's no one person sitting at the top that, that mm. you can target so i understand that there's going to be challenges involved in attacking a distributed uh crime ecosystem but i i just think let's not write it off until we've tried it and i just don't think we've actually given it a proper go yet we have seen here in australia the announcement um uh, i think it was late last year of a 140 strong asd and afp uh afp uh, uh task force to do this but they've been very tight-lipped on what it is that they've actually yeah. done you just hear the occasional murmur out of government people that oh no they did stuff and it worked and okay that's nice it's very easy for them to say that it would be better if we had a, a deeper idea but do you see what i mean adam when i'm saying like people are sort of saying it hasn't worked when it's something we haven't actually tried yet yeah there's a number of parts right there's the actually doing the operations you know technically targeting people and and systems and getting in and disrupting their communications disrupting their trust models which is you know, where we have most leverage because of that distributed nature of their organizations but then we also have to talk about it, right? Because there's no point in having a doomsday weapon if you don't tell people about a doomsday weapon. So we have to kind of have some successes to talk about them. You know, in the case of Australia, it hasn't been that long. Like, and getting to the point where you've done that whole cycle of disrupting a ransomware operation and then it being far enough past that you can now talk about it without burning too much the way of sources and methods. So, you know, it, it feels like the... the you know, it's in progress, but we haven't yet seen a full cycle of what that looks like. But, you know, you talk to people who work in incident response and the general consensus seems to be that, you know, there are a degree of generally understood norms about, say, targeting Western governments, where yeah. if you roll into a, you know, government agency of a, you know, Five Eyes Nation, probably you should just turn around and, and back the f*** up little man. Yeah, I mean, well, we look, you know, you can say that and it sounds like theoretical. You're actually talking about a, a, an incident that, you know, obviously we won't mention details here, but uh, incident responders that, you know, have seen ransomware actors get a cobalt strike beacon onto a FedGov system in a Five Eyes country and just say, lol, nope, and leave. Yeah, which is, you know, that's, you know, is that deterrence? Is that just kind of general normal setting? We don't really know, but... The, but someone like clearly decided it wasn't worth the... The juice wasn't worth the squeeze, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think, like, in fairness to Chris Rolfe, uh, the argument he has been making really was comparing, like, military defend forward against APT crews to what we were doing against ransomware crews. And then the way that we would, you know, that cyber commentary defend forward against... 
uh, other government targets is pretty different to how you would approach ransomware crews. Uh, and so I think, you know, there is a lot of nuance uh, yeah. in this kind of conversation and it's still very, very early in this whole process to say whether or not this has worked or not. Mm. You know, gut feel, you know, being afraid that you're going to get cybercommed or that they're in your forums messing with you or that you have to validate identities out of band but you're in a distributed organisation where no one really knows each other. Like, that adds friction and cost. And that's what we've said all along is the goal, is to add friction and Well, cost. and to, to, you know, and to establish some norms, like don't target systems of national significance. Yes. Yeah. Right? And that's, that's, that's what victory looks like. I don't think anyone credible is saying that you're going to completely end ransomware with this. But at the moment, it's just too big and hitting too much important stuff. I mean, if you can get them off hospitals and uh, critical infrastructure, you're winning. Yeah. And yeah. the fact that, you know, casinos can get hacked, right? Oh, that's, yeah. Go nuts. There's plenty of money there. There's plenty of, you know, that's a target-rich environment. Yeah. Uh, you know, don't hit a water utility in a small town. Yeah. But, you know, if you want to go hit uh, casinos, then, you know. Is it yeah. a victimless crime? Casinos Probably and law not, firms. But... Casinos and law firms. Go for it. You know, <laughs> let's let's just work out some new norms here. Yeah. I mean, I think it'll be really interesting to see because the fact that ransomware is just growing and it's become honestly a bit of an epidemic. It's just attractive to young, impressionable people who want to get into get into the hacking space. Like you join a cybercrime forum, you start watching the marketplace. It's it's alluring to join a ransomware group or perform something illicit because it's, you know, in your head, you just think you can make money and you don't really think about the consequences. I think the more ransomware is more known outside of the security community, the more attractive it is for people with that kind of mindset. And mm. yeah. I mean, I just think, you know, let's RMRF those forums. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? Like this stuff. is what I mean when I'm talking about goodbye like, Intel companies. See ya. That's the thing. They are gonna they are gonna be against this because that's their bread and butter. Yeah. But if you can go in there, grab a copy of their secret key that authenticates their hidden service, then vaporize them. I mean, let's do that. And and we just haven't seen that. Like the FBI loves getting into places and collecting evidence and collecting yeah. intelligence and then doing an orderly shutdown. I'm talking about chaos. Let's go for some <laughs> chaos. Let's go for a cyber knife fight. You like the detonate button. And until we've done that, until we've done that, we can't say it hasn't worked. That's all. Yeah. No, I agree. Now, moving on, it looks like North Korea has hacked yet another uh, cryptocurrency exchange. This time they racked off with $31 million in cryptocurrency. I just think it's amazing that this has turned into North Korea bread and butter and they've just turned this this whole crypto theft stuff, it's a well-oiled machine and they just keep going and going and going. Uh, Lena, have you ever worked a, a Lazarus or North Korea incident? And and if so, how did you rate their, their tradecraft? Uh, I think they've definitely gotten better as time has passed. I remember back in the day, they, they, the way that they used to breach organizations was using like open source tools. It wasn't like super sophisticated. They were really messy. But now they've like really zoned in and cr like developed a really good tradecraft around how they target crypto organizations, which makes sense because that's like a primary massive chunk of how they make, how their economy runs. Yeah, it is. I mean, they used to hit central banks and they've stopped doing that, which I yeah. think is a sign that the measures that SWIFT took when this was happening actually worked because uh, it sent them scurrying off to steal crypto <laughs> tokens or whatever, like fake internet money, Yeah. Um, which I'm going to call a victory, but that's because I'm, you know, I think crypto is a, is a clown car. I think a lot <laughs> of the times there's a lot of like crypto startups, the market's super unregulated. Uh, a lot of these organizations focus on making money and doing crypto security is a massive part of it, but 
because of that, because there's not much regulation, because there's all these new coins popping up, new exchanges popping up all the time, it just opens up so many different organizations that North Korea could target versus X bank in X country. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like a yeah. list, just there's a set amount. Yeah. Now we got this uh, story here from Ars Technica. Uh, Dan Gooden's written it up and it's, it's a company, it's based on a blog post of a company having a big old sook because one of their, one of its employees got, their Google Workspace account owned and then was socially engineered into entering a uh, one-time password that allowed the attacker to synchronize their like Google Authenticator thing. So the reason we're talking about this is because uh, it was a few months ago now that uh, uh, Google said, okay, that's it. You're now able to synchronize your Google Authenticator seeds into your Workspace account. Now, on the whole, I actually think this is a good idea. Because changing phones, right, uh, prior to this would actually be a major ordeal. And now you just get the, you put the app on your phone, you authenticate and bang, everything synchronizes and it's a convenience feature. But is there a trade-off? Yes. And this is it. Lena, let's start with you. What are your thoughts on, on this? Now that we've seen someone maliciously synchronizing, you know, Google Authenticator one-time password seeds from a from a hacked workspace account, you know, does that mean that this is a feature that should die? I mean, I, I still, I actually still think it's a good feature. No, I think it's a good feature. I've used this feature. I think it's a great feature. I think the issue is more like the education around phishing is obviously not working or not getting through people's heads, and it's the re and, and the reason for that is you know criminals are getting creative in how they do it. They make it seem legitimate. And in, in that write-up, they talked about how they pretended to be an IT member with knowledge of the floor plan and internal processes. Yeah. Like that yeah. would convince anyone. I'm sure that I could get fished with that. Touch wood. Yeah. I mean, I remember talking to Kevin Mitnick actually about this stuff years ago. And he's like, oh, look, the thing is, you know, he could actually socially engineer a help desk to find out some of their open tickets and say, well, look, I'll handle those tickets because we're auditing your performance and we want to speak to some of your users. So give me a recent ticket. So he'd actually take a ticket from the help desk, a real one, and actually ring up the user and help them with their problem. And then he would ring them up a week later and ask them to execute malware. And they would because he'd already established that he was part of the help desk, had their ticket, worked them through the problem. So social engine is always going to be something when if someone puts in enough effort, it, it, it's going to work. I mean, the one thing that occurred to me here is that it just makes defending your workspace accounts or your Gmail accounts much more important. And perhaps you should be FIDO2ing that, you know, using your, your pass keys or whatever, yeah. uh, which, which, you know, is going to protect the account. I mean, is that what you thought as well, Adam? Yeah, abs absolutely. You read this, you think this is what FIDO2 is for. So yeah. you can't social engineer someone when, you know, there's no code or token to give them. It just works and it works by validating who the hell you're talking to. So like that should be a human, Not that should not be a human's problem, validating yeah. who you're talking to. That's a, a thing that, you know, we can solve with technology. There's not very many problems that we're good at solving with technology, but, you know, where, where we can, we probably should. And like I have some sympathy for, for this company because they did get pretty thoroughly wrecked uh, and they do list, you know, security as a thing that's important to them. Um, well, I think their customers were like crypto crypto people or crypto So companies. that was the, the customers yeah. that whoever victimized them uh, went after, yeah. But um, like understanding how your echo, auth ecosystem actually works, like the as-built reality of it and where you can get fingers into it, you know, that's the thing attackers are great at. Uh, well, I mean, I was just thinking, like I just said, oh, you should use your FIDO2 pass key, right? 
pass keys get synchronized across iCloud accounts. So then yes, are you going to yes, get someone do. hacking your iCloud account to get your pass key for your workspace account to reset and mm-hmm. synchronize <laughs> your one-time passwords? I mean, you know, ultimately it always boils down to the weakest link up the top, which is always going to be some sort of password reset procedure, right? Yeah, exactly. And if it all backs into your, you know, your phone number and now you're dependent on the telco, we've seen how well that's gone for everybody. Mm. Um, you know, and even just like, when I read the story, I opened up my Google account settings and my Apple account settings and looked at it and thought, do I really understand the vectors into my personal account auth system, right? There's a mm. bunch of combos of things and like old work email accounts and so on and so forth that like, it's hard for me to understand the full picture of what my personal auth ecosystem looks like. And doing that for a whole company, it's legitimately hard. Yeah. I mean, I had to work really hard to remove my mobile number from important accounts, right? So that they just don't have it. And I still get pestered by them. Give us your mobile number. You might lose your account. And I'm like, that's fine. I don't care. I'd rather lose my account than give you my phone number and get SIM swapped. Yeah, the hard thing about like IR is a lot of the times companies focus a lot on, you know, EDR logs, event logs, security logs, network logs. They don't think about peripheral logs like this, like authenticator logs and sending Mm. all of this into the environment. And sometimes a lot of these things aren't even logged. Like if you want to transfer your Google authenticator to another phone, it just pops up a QR code that you can scan. Where where's that logged? Is that getting pulled into the seam? Do you have a lot set on that? We don't really hear about that, you know. Yeah. Now look, uh, let's talk about some old school hacking uh, now. And Andy Greenberg has a write up in Wired about uh, a bunch of USB malware doing the rounds in Africa, and it looks like it still works there. So a presumed uh, Chinese APT crew is actually using this as a as a vector, Adam. Yeah, it's a you know pretty retro a retro style of uh, of attack, but absolutely still works in places where you know uh, use of USB keys on untrusted computers is still relatively common. So in uh, some areas of Africa, you know, internet cafes still very much a thing, um, and sharing USB sticks you know is still a thing. Uh, and so yeah, we're seeing in some cases you know ten year old USB born malware like derived from PlugX even, doing the rounds, ending up in interesting places. And obviously China has a bunch of, you know, geopolitical interest in Africa. So everyone has a geopolitical interest well, in Africa. Mm. Yeah, in like I feel sorry case. for Africa at the moment because there's just so much old school shit fuckery going on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there certainly is. So China's been, you know, triaging where they've ended up, um, you know, because USB malware, as we found out with Stuxnet, uh, you know, it's kind of difficult to keep control of because it can spread in ways that are unpredictable. And But why don't, you know, we, why don't, don't we see this being used in the United States or Australia or New Zealand? Like why, you know, is there something different about uh, markets that might be a little bit or regions that might be a little bit behind in terms of infosec programs? Like are we better equipped to deal with this or is this still something that could happen here? I think it's less about infosec and more about, um, you know, USB sticks are for sharing data and that you share data on sticks because you don't have your own computer or the computers are shared. So it's kind of an economic thing, I think. Yeah, I think it's also just like companies moving to the cloud uh, and prioritizing sharing data over the cloud on SharePoint and Teams. Using SIS keys that give them access. Yeah, SAS uh, tokens. Yeah, your storage (laughs) container. But also like a lot of really large companies with the mature security team disable USB ports from working. Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of what I was wondering, if this is just something that's kind of addressed here. And, you know, why is it not addressed there? And I guess that makes sense, right? Which is that if you haven't moved to an all-singing, all-dancing cloud world that relies on really good connectivity, then I guess, yeah, you're going to be sneaking adding stuff around, aren't you? 
It's funny they're using this method, like something happened similarly with China where they lured someone from General Electric to present at a conference and then they messed up the HDMI cord so that their laptop wouldn't, you know, display the presenter notes. And then uh, they were yeah, like, oh, yeah, 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 let me fix it. Let me shove a USB in. And yeah, then they exfiltrated all the data. Yeah. I mean, nice. Well done. Hey, now I want to I, I want to do a uh, follow up. We mentioned this last week, this bug that appeared to be hitting like a whole bunch of browsers and it's the WebP library bug. And man, I was right. You know, I said someone's sweet, sweet bug got squashed and it's just popped up in everything. The reason I wanted to mention it again this week is because there was a, uh, I saw some social media posts on this where people were just realizing how present this bug is in Electron apps, right? Mm. And they are like statically in there and every single one of these Electron apps is going to need to get an update uh, against this WebP bug. And it just goes back to my golden rule from years ago, friends don't let friends run Electron apps. <laughs> Amen, brother. And I, mean, I think Signal shipped a patch for Signal, which is built on, Signal Desktop is built on, on Electron. Um, so they ship one out quickly, but yeah, there are so many Electron apps with embedded Chrome in them uh, that are just never going to see a patch. Yeah, I, I saw threads on like one of these, one of these like text-based, you know, Twitters or the, the clones or whatever, just with people just going, oh my God, and this and this and this. And, you know, you could just see the horror dawning on everyone that, um, you know, while the browsers might have copped updates, like these these other apps, I mean, even what, Teams is Electron-based, isn't it? Discord. Yep, yep. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Discord, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there is a lot of Electron apps out yeah. there. And there's just kind of no real reason for them to exist anymore. Like in the older days when browsers were more restricted, you know, you could kind of see why you want a non-sandboxed browser-based app. But with progressive web apps and with everything else, there's just no need for Electron anymore. No, I mean, there used, to be, there used to be features that you could get. Uh, via the Electron versions that you couldn't get via the browser version. Is that still true? I don't know. I just don't know because I run everything in a browser because I'm not suicidal. Exactly right. So there are some aspects where like file handling and some like local interaction stuff can be more straightforward, but the, you know, the, the, there's just no reason for it anymore. And, and modern browsers, you look, you look at how the browser is integrated on macOS you know, and the amount of extra protections you get around, like sandboxing access to files and so on. Like, there's a reason why we put everything in a browser and why yes. we've spent the last 20 years making the browsers safe to use. Mm. Well, it's funny. I mean, they're safe-ish, right? And, well, um, safe <laughs> right? I'm thinking relative to ActiveX era well, Relative IE6. to Electron, yes, 100%. But yeah. I, I did find it interesting that um, lockdown mode is getting an update in iOS 17, and a lot of it is, like, removing various APIs and whatever from the from the browser, right? So, yeah. like... They're safer, but I mean, Lena, let me ask you, are you an app or tab person? I'm an app person, but I think that's a generation thing. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, why I don't you just so. throw, that, throw that stuff in a tab? I don't know. I don't know what it is. I love Discord. I love Signal. I but love... I've got Discord over here. It's in a tab. I just, I don't know what it is. I, I don't know why you want to use it in a tab. It's like not as pretty. So I don't get it's, owned. Uh, I know. It's, I think it's a generation thing because I don't know anyone around my generation that puts Discord in a tab. The kids today, Adam. Yeah, kids today, I don't know. Uh, and we should point out too, for those who haven't guessed, Lena is is not of our vintage, right? So <laughs> we thought it would be great to get someone on the show who's actually younger than us um, yeah. for a change. 
Now let's talk a little bit about uh, NSO Group and some Pegasus spyware. Uh, the a, a journalist, uh, Galina Timchenko, who is, I think she's like the head honcho over at Medusa, which is a Russian independent media outlet that's actually been banned uh, in Russia. I listened to the um, podcast done by Kevin Rothrock, who's Medusa's English, uh, English-speaking uh, head of content. Um, that's really good. It's called The Naked Pravda. Recommend people check that one out. But um, yeah, the, the boss at Medusa uh, had NSO group malware turn up on her phone. It's not really clear who's behind this. If I had to guess, it's a European country that wants to do third-party collection. Because if you're a you know exiled Russian journalist, you're going to have a bunch of interesting sources in Russia that would be impossible for you to cultivate. Um, but if you can get on that person's phone, you can observe their communications with those sources. So that's what I think. The reason I don't think it's Russia is, I mean, I don't know if you've seen Jackie Brown, the movie, Adam, but there's a moment with Odell where he says, My ass may be dumb, but I ain't no dumb ass. <laughs> and that's, yeah. I mean, I think NSO might be stupid, but they're not dumb enough to sell Pegasus to Russia. No, like that, just, yeah, it's a that bridge too far, right? So, so my guess is here, Europeans doing, some European country doing third-party collection on a, on a Russian journalist device. What do you think? I mean, I'm I'm conflicted about this because I would imagine that if you were going to do that, like Pegasus at this point is pretty visible. Like the the our techniques for spotting Pegasus in the wild and reporting on it, and the fact that if you find it, Citizen Lab's going to get involved. It's going to get media coverage. Like it seems like a high risk play in that respect. If well, you what's were been a, the, what's been the negative consequence for whoever did this? Well, we don't even know who it is. That's a good point. I mean, we that's the advantage of using of using NSO Group, right? Is it's impossible to attribute it to anyone in particular. Yeah, so there's that, there's that kind of like safety of hiding in a crowd. You know, anyone yeah. could be in there. So that's no, a good point. Um, either way, it seems a risky operation to me. But, you know, as you say, if there's no consequences, maybe it isn't. And it um, looks like uh, other Russian journalists have been notified that they probably have been pegasus as well. One thing I found really interesting about all of this is it was actually Apple who notified yeah. the journalists that something was up on their device. And that tells you something about the level of telemetry that they're getting. I mean, I'm guessing an exploit misfired. There was a crash dump, you know, and I've talked to people in vulnerability research about this, right? And all one bad crash, you know, when mm-hmm. Apple's sitting there on all this telemetry and they see a device do something that no other device has ever done and they go, okay, that's a crash dump we might want to look into. Uh, and just quickly before we go, we've got a report here from Reuters that says the uh, War Crimes Tribunal of the International Criminal Court uh, has uh, had some sort of incident and stuff stolen. Um, you know, the story doesn't come right out and say it, but does tend to hint that the suspicion is that Russia was behind this. I mean, I don't think we'd be all that surprised to discover that, you know, the Russian government was hacking the Hague. No, I don't think we'd be surprised at all, given that they've also, you know, uh, expressed interest in prosecuting uh, Putin as well. So, you know, I guess it makes sense to go yeah. task. You put them. out an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin, you're probably going to get shell popped on your own. I think, I think so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, seems likely. Well, that's actually it for the week's news. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for joining me as always. Most welcome, Pat. And Lena, thank you so much for coming on and co-hosting this week. Uh, that was fantastic, and uh, I hope we can do it again. Thank you for having me. That was Adam Boileau and special guest co-host Lena Lau there with a look at the week's security news. 
It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Adam Bateman from Push Security. Uh, they do SaaS security and recently published some interesting work on what SaaS-based attacks can look like. And they've spun this into a sort of MITRE attack style matrix for SaaS attacks. So here's Adam Bateman to talk through that and a few other sassy things. Yeah, so when we built push initially it was to help people identify all the different identities that employees are creating on the internet across various different cloud applications so they could understand which apps were being brought into the organization where company data was going and which of those should and could go under sso but as we started to look at these and discover different applications we realized just how impactful a lot of these applications are and so there's a lot of red team and instant responder blood running through push and so we couldn't really help ourselves. We just kind of started to look at this through a red team, a red teamer's eyes. And the idea of this research was really to answer two questions. Firstly, if you were sort of targeting a company through this SaaS native world, firstly, is it possible to take control of a company without touching the endpoint or the network at all? And the second point was really, is it possible to take control of a more trivial application and then use that to actually leverage your access into something more critical in exactly the same way it is in the in the on-prem world, right? So I think a lot of the time people think about, you know, Active Directory, okay, well, I need to defend this thing, but it's the dev server on the on the side that actually has a path through to compromising it, or, you know, my website and my VPN endpoint are important, but it's the dev server on the internet that no one knew about, which could actually give the attacker a foothold and use that to advantage to take control of something wider. So we were looking at it from the same, uh, through the same lens. Using, yeah, using old school thinking for the new school. Exactly, yeah, there applying it through into this new world. Yeah. So we kind of think about, uh, you know, identities in the cloud are the modern attack surface. It's a little bit like open ports on IP addresses used to be uh, previously. So when we started doing this research, we were looking at it and we, we, we decided to, build a MITRE attack framework inspired matrix of all the different SaaS native attacks that were out there and possible. And some of those are known ones like credential stuffing and MFA fatigue. But a lot of those are ones that we've actually, through looking through a red team's lens, we've come up with and had a look at ourselves. And so um, the idea around the research was really uh, what kind of attacks could you could you use? So we we did certain things. There were some really simple techniques in there. Like if you were to compromise a trivial SaaS application, something as trivial as a, as a Trello board, and it's not connected to SSO, could you, for example, create an API key, then connect to the API and backdoor all the links inside the application so that when an employee comes along, they're very used to their, their session timing out. And so when they click a link, it then redirects you off to an Okta login page. You can then man in the middle uh, the, the kind of SSO and then take control of the application and redirect them back to where they where they came. And that was you know, possible. We also found a lot of these applications have lots and lots of different things in there, like API keys and access tokens and webhooks and different things like that. So a lot of applications that from the website wouldn't appear like they are would have a major business impact. But actually, you can steal access tokens and API keys and webhooks and do things like send, uh, do IM phishing. So you can actually send malicious links inside people's teams or slack and use that to fish people and take control which is where people are not expecting it yeah yeah i mean we're seeing at the moment too um ransomware crews at the moment using teams actually um which is you know 
a different thing because you don't need to compromise an account to send a Teams message to someone. But it is that thing of like having success by popping up where people aren't expecting you to. It's got hard to do ransomware over email because the email security providers have got good at, you know, between their good intel and their good filtering, they've got good at stopping that stuff. So that's driving people into things like LinkedIn and things like Teams because, you know, as you say, you're not expecting to get malware from your company Slack. Exactly, yeah, and, and then we've we've said throughout the industry forever, it's attackers will go wherever the is the lowest friction. And if you again come back to the pen testing world, if you were then pen testing a public facing infrastructure, you might go and pick one particular server and go hyper deep and try and find vulnerabilities. But in addition, you would go broad and you'd sort of run vulnerability scanners across the whole public IP address range to see what you can pick out. The same is true in the cloud world. So, for example super easy i'd say credential stuffing is probably a SaaS applications worst enemy people are creating new accounts all the time across the internet whether they're inviting colleagues in or they're signing up and experimenting with new SaaS applications or they're actually adopting new SaaS applications as those identities are created you know attacker can very very simply do credential stuffing so using passwords that have been guessed or stolen or bought or you know have been won through result of prior phishing campaigns and just spray them continuously across all the different SaaS applications and then immediately pick off weak accounts as they come along right so that could just run automatically and you can pick off these different accounts and the result of that could be access to one of the applications we've spoke about that holds uh, integrations into core systems or webhooks or API keys, but also a lot of these applications themselves are actually really powerful. So you get finance applications, for example, which are connected up to your bank account. And if you get you know, things like Ramp, and not picking on Ramp in particular, it's just a popular uh, finance application. If you get access to that, you can make transfers out of your account. You can generate credit card details. Now you've written up what some of these, uh, how you can chain together some of these attacks uh, into realistic attack scenarios. uh, And you've got a couple of interesting ideas around persistence there. I'd love it if you could um, just walk us through that. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the SAS attack matrix was really for us the first installment. So it shows an overview of all the different 38, so far 38 SAS attack techniques that exist, which are SAS native. And then what we're doing from here is releasing a series of blog posts which chain those different individual techniques together into more of an attack scenario. So you could actually see how those will play out. And we released one recently um, called Samuel Jacking a Poison Tenant, which really blends together. It's effectively like a, a cloud equivalent of a watering hole attack, like leveraging legitimate SaaS applications to, to you sign up as somebody inside the company. And because they don't do email address verification, I can sign up as anyone and then start inviting anybody else into the company so it gains momentum. And then you're admin on that system and you can do some clever things. That was the first blog post. The second post that's now coming out is about uh, what we call shadow workflows. And this is this about is the evil one. Gained... This is the one I wanted to talk about because it is it is yeah. it is horrible. So shadow workflows and um, evil twin integrations is what we think about. So the idea here is once you've compromised a let's say Azure and you've gained access to someone's account, how do you persist? And the way we think about this is that automation apps like Zapier and there's a dozen others, they are kind of the PowerShell of the cloud world. So if you gain access to someone's account, if you install a Zapier oh, app into their, into their account, 
you can actually use that to set up a ton of automations to harvest files from their OneDrive on a continual basis or forward emails out to you on a continual basis. Once you've got access to email, there's a lot of stuff you can do. So you could go across all the other SaaS applications, hit forgot password, and you can actually reset and gain access to everything, you know, leverage password list or whatever you want to do. But the thing that's particularly tricky about it and where the evil twin side comes in is that if you gain access to someone's account and they already have one of these automation apps, like, for example, um, this Zapier, as we mentioned, you can actually install your own Zapier uh, app into their account. And to them, it only shows as one. And because there are no new consents, nothing shows in the Azure logs. So now what you have is a very, very stealthy way to backdoor that account where they don't see anything different. And I now can log into my own Zapier account and I can use that just to harvest um, data from their account on a regular basis. So, you know, a lot of this research, you know, as you say, it's it's the red teamer and uh, incident responder blood coursing through the veins of the staff at uh, Push Security that led to this, um, uh, you know, led to this research. And a lot of it is theoretical. What have you observed attackers doing in the wild, right? Because I'm guessing most of it is pretty low sophistication, high volume stuff like cred stuffing, like phishing, you know, with the, you know some of these more advanced fish kits and, and, and whatever. Um, have you seen anything fancy yet, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I mean, this is the thing that's crazy about it. And this is where we should... How would you know? Is be, what you're going to yeah, say, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like we we help people to identify vulnerable identities across everything, right? The core applications and the broader apps as well. But what we're saying is there's a lot of uh, focus at the moment on the kind of core productivity apps. And there's a lot of attacks happening there. But is that because of the fact that's the only place you can get logs? If you take these thousands of other SaaS applications, it's super limited. You can't mm. get the information from those. So it becomes really hard. Even if you take something very, very common like credential stuffing, which is hugely powerful for getting mass compromise across lots of apps, how would you determine that without having the logs in a central location? Even the SaaS vendors themselves would need to all collaborate to make that happen. The thing that's kind of interesting, I think the best result from this is uh, the report that we saw come out from Auth0, who owned by Okta, and massively oversimplifying what they do here, but they effectively provide authentication or login for lots of different SaaS applications. So we're in a pretty good position, I'd say, to talk about this. And they released a report, and in that report, it said that 34% of the total traffic across all industries to their platform is credential stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So it's like, like I, I know some people who work in, you know, other places that see that, like CDNs and whatever, uh, you know, CDNs that offer WAF and whatever. And yeah, it's it's insane. The, the amount of bot traffic to, to these places, like if you measure it by volume, you know, maybe not 34%, but if you measure it by like connections, it probably is. Absolutely. And as I said, it's a really low, uh, it's a high ROI attack. It's easy to do. Anyone could, could execute it and so to leave that running continually and picking off accounts as employees are creating them makes a lot of sense yeah yeah um in terms of public breaches as well i'm absolutely no doubt we're going to see more of these i mean as when you work in this space you start to attract conversations and so we we hear from people saying oh hey i just actually these red teamers are now uh, just compromised us without touching the box a uh, box once like without touching any metal whatsoever and uh you hear about real incidents and bug bounties and these things that are coming up but it's interesting to me that the the best public cases you can see are things where applications like MailChimp are getting compromised yeah. and other mail service providers. And the reason for that is because what they do is compromise someone's uh, mail service provider 
and then are actually using those applications to send emails downstream to their customers in order to fish them from a legit company domain. And those things are probably being picked up because of the fact there is something there active yeah, something that can useful. be observed I mean, and reported. This is, you know, going back to what you said is like, you know, I, th- I think m- the bulk of the activity is obviously targeting stuff like the, you know, Google Google productivity and Microsoft productivity things and, and those sort of accounts. And I think one of the reasons for that, though, is because they're standard attackers know them do you know what i mean it's sort of like why there's no malware on no you know not a whole heap of malware on mac like people get comfortable with what they know but i don't think that means that we can just say well it's all fine then we don't need to worry about it now uh we exchanged a few notes uh so i'm going to say something that is 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 going to be highly irritating to you which is but hey you know people are using sso why is this a problem yeah that's a common one and that's fair fair common misconception right yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a really, really good question. I mean, we do pull in, uh, we connect into IDPs and pull those identities in as well. So it's about giving the entire picture. But the thing that's interesting is that because we're in this world of self-service where a different, a different departments have taken IT into their own hands, they sign up themselves and experiment with different applications. And there's a... it's after they've done the experimentation, then they will go to the security team or procurement team and IT team and say, hey, we would like to use this application. Now what do we do? Right? And they don't tend to want to do that until they're certain they want to use it because of the red tape. And so my point being is that... By the time they've app- officially procured it, they've been using it a while, right? Exactly. And a lot of these have got very, very low usage tiers or free for a year up front. So it could take a long, long time to discover them. And so my point being is that connecting onto SSO is now the last step in the process, not the first step. That's the mm. first thing to consider. The second thing on top of that, I haven't looked at all thousand applications, but we did take 500 of the most commonly used ones that we see and the ones that we deem to be high impact, either because you could tell from the website and the feature set that it's high impact like the finance applications or because they contain a route to a more critical system through access tokens and API keys. And we found about a third of those have any support for SSO whatsoever. And then within those, you have to be on obviously the top tier, the famous SSO tax in order to make that happen. So it's not possible always to add it to SSO and also not always justified. But I think the thing that's really insightful for people is that people tend to think about SSO as a shield for their identities. And it's really not, it's a management layer. So what I'm saying is that the way that SAML is implemented on these different SaaS applications is very inconsistent. And when you actually add and onboard an application onto SSO, you can actually often still log in using the local accounts anyway. So they would still be vulnerable to things like credential stuffing, right? Yeah. So it's healthy to think about <laughs> well, I mean, SSO it's, it's like, just a, like when It's just like when Microsoft used to leave like IMAP open, right? For people who had, you know, modern cloud-based email but you know legacy support i mean it's similar to that you just might not realize that it's own you know that you can authenticate via not saml as well as via saml right so i I think of it like active directory right you connect uh, a workstation onto a domain does that mean you can't log in as a local admin you shouldn't defend those accounts anymore or does it just mean that you have a now a management layer where you can you know manage his identity is going it's the same thing Adam Bateman, very interesting stuff. Thank you uh, for joining me. We're going to link through to that research that you published. I actually had it sent to me by a couple of listeners uh, when it uh, when it first dropped, so uh, people can uh, have a bit of a read through that. Uh, a pleasure to chat to you, and I uh, hope we can do it again. You too. Thanks a lot. 
That was Adam Bateman from Push Security there. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Push Security for sponsoring this week's episode of Risky Business. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back in a couple of days with another edition of our Snake Oilers podcast. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.